Hello and welcome to On Point. This episode features an interview with Rolf Arnhem, a chair of Vistage, the world's largest and most comprehensive executive coaching organization for small and mid-sized businesses with $1 million to $1 billion in revenue. As a Vistage chair, Rolf mentors numerous business leaders in the community through three groups he oversees. He has served every community in his personal and professional life with a focus on service to others before self and making each community better for future generations. Rolf is a West Point graduate and retired Army officer with a distinguished 21-year military career, including two combat tours in Vietnam and commanding an infantry brigade in the Army Reserve. He retired with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel and later as Colonel in the Reserves. Rolf has held numerous significant leadership positions, including serving as CEO of the Pasadena, Long Beach, Palm Springs, and Beverly Hills Chambers of Commerce from 1978 to 1999. In this episode of On Point, Rolf talks about how he works at Vistage with CEOs and executives to develop and add to their professional skill sets and grow as business people. He provides insight on his highly varied career and what inspired him to write a book for readers to gain insights into mentorship and coaching, being able to walk away with multiple calls to action. Rolf also touches on the power of the Chamber of Commerce as an important resource to help you succeed in business, and sheds light on the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of moving the Army versus Navy game across the nation. Now, please enjoy this interview between Rolf Arnhem and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to On Point. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I am joined by a very special guest. Rolf, how are you? Good to see you. Good afternoon. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Excited to chat about business, about West Point, about how you brought the Army-Navy game to California, and and much, much more. So before we get into all that, can you tell me a little bit about your current role at Vistage? I'm currently a chair for uh, Vistage International. I have uh, three groups that are a combination of uh, CEOs and senior executives for a total of 58 under wing that I uh, coach and mentor. I try to help them to uh, not only develop and add to their professional skill sets, but I try to help them uh, uh, grow their business at the same time, help them to make uh, better decisions. The way we do that is uh, I have sessions uh, both as a group and one-on-one once a month where I ask them uh, pretty deep uh, questions in a confidential environment. When we're in a group meeting, it's sort of like a think tank, and we push them to be totally transparent, to share with us what their problems are, and then we help them to make better and faster decisions. At the end of the day, I hold them accountable. What I can tell you is that uh, when I did my book, Start Everything, Finish Nothing, I dedicated it uh, to my Vistage members for their unintended contribution to it. I love that. Always unintended consequences and contributions whenever you're working with anyone. And we'll get into some of the Vistage lessons here later. You already mentioned your book, which I will link up in the show notes, and I highly recommend uh, everybody to check out. Starting off, you wrote a book. You did something very difficult in writing a book, sure. But before that, you did something even more difficult that every West Point grad knows, which is you moved the Army-Navy game. So tell me about what was going on at the time. What were you doing? Why the heck did you get this crazy idea to move the Army-Navy game? 
Well, at the time, I was the CEO of the Pasadena Chamber of Commerce. And uh, my mission really was to move Pasadena from a one event uh, per year to multiple events and activity to sort of ramp up business activity. And so I saw the Rose Bowl as an opportunity to do that. And so I really went down two tracks. But the first track, the Army-Navy game, we were at home uh, with a group of people watching the Army-Navy game in uh, late 1981. And I just made a frivolous comment. And I said, you know, the game should really move around the country. The, the two academies belong to our nation. It's a shame for it to be totally held in, in Philadelphia. And so somebody said to me, it can't be done. That's the wrong thing to say to me. And as a matter of fact, there's a chapter in my book. So I set about uh, putting a proposal together, and, and the selling proposition was pretty basic. From the Academy's perspective, they were losing attendance in Philadelphia, and they was losing a lot of interest. Philadelphia really, at that time, just saw it as another event. They also, both Academies, uh, were having a difficult time with their brand west of the Mississippi, and it was difficult at best to attract uh, qualified candidates for both the, uh, the military academy and the naval academy west of the Mississippi. So I saw that as an admissions challenge. And so I put a proposal together, and uh, by virtue of some strong relationships, I was able to get access uh, to the top people in our country, uh, starting with the Secretary of Defense, the uh, Secretary of the Army, the Secretary of the Air Force, the two superintendents, and I made my case to uh, characterize how advantageous it would be for them to move the game, 10,000 people across the country and back again and conduct it in the Rose Bowl. From a city of Pasadena perspective, it was a huge bonanza because not only would we bring a lot of people into the Pasadena area, but it'd be another major event with enormous economic impact. Obviously, you know, the game had been going for a long time at that point. Had it ever moved anywhere, you know, close to the West Coast? No, it had not. This is the first time ever. It turned out to be the largest movement in peacetime history, where 10,000 people had to be moved from both West Point and Annapolis to the Pasadena area, never mind house and feed them, conduct a parade, conduct events. It was enormous $6 million undertaking to make all of that happen. And everybody candidly thought I was totally crazy. What was uh, interesting about it is that um, I, I got the go-ahead for this thing in February of 1983 with the idea that the game would be played on a Saturday the first week of, of December. That was a pretty tight timeline to raise $6 million and to uh, put together all of the administration and logistics to make it happen. So I really initially had not envisaged the thing happening in 83. I figured, oh, shoot, that'll happen downstream. Wrong. They gave me the go-ahead. What was weird is that uh, less than two months later, they were having the basketball playoffs in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the various uh, TV stations were battling over who was going to traditional games, Penn, Penn State, and on a USC and so forth, UCLA and on again. And they made a rather strange conclusion. Instead of the game being played on the first Saturday in December, they moved it to a Friday after Thanksgiving, which really threw a major monkey wrench in. Number one, it cut a week out. Number two, it completely upset my uh, sweetheart deal because I had been successful in meeting with the chairman of the board and the president of United Airlines and got a sweetheart deal to move all of the cadets and all the midshipmen across country and back. Well, that blew up because now I'm looking at a Thanksgiving weekend. So I really had to scramble to get the air put together. And then I had to scramble 
to uh, find places for everybody to stay, rather. And the Secretary of the Navy was not my best friend because he was a native of Philadelphia and thought I was totally the enemy. He threw a couple of wrenches at me and said, no, you're going to put at least a 1,000 cadets and a 1,000 midshipmen in hotels. There's cost. But the rest of them, you know, could go out to family homes. And I was befriended with a sports editor for uh, CBS Sports in Los Angeles. He got me on TV, and I made this plea about how would you like to have a cadet or a midshipman in your home over the Thanksgiving holidays? Holy smoke, the thing blew up completely. And we were oversubscribed in terms of people that wanted to house cadets and midshipmen, which had a very lasting impact as more weddings came out of that, more longstanding friendships came out of it. But then I had a problem. I had to feed 2,000 cadets and midshipmen who were stuck in a hotel. I went back on TV and was able to get them all out for Thanksgiving dinner again. And adjusting for inflation, you're talking about, this would be like current day, over $17 million. You know, $6 million back then. But I mean, you're talking, this is a massive amount of money. It gets worse. I had to raise money in parallel with Peter Uberoth and the Los Angeles 1984 Olympic Games. He was getting cash. I was getting pledges, which boomeranged later on. So uh, people could see putting up cash to support the Olympics, which is going to be ongoing, you know, for several weeks. This game is, you know, four hours and boom, gone. What happened on the Monday after the game, Senator Proxmire of Wisconsin came out and said, I'd certainly like to know how many federal dollars were spent on this and called for a GAO investigation. So the LA Times comes out Monday morning, says Army-Navy game under investigation. Holy cow, that completely froze all of my pledges, which really threw a major monkey wrench into stuff. So I had to double back and figure out, okay, how am I going to pay all of this off? At what point were you like, maybe this isn't worth it? Probably the day that they were all in the air and I was scrambling to pull all the pieces together. And what was really bizarre is that we were clicking along, people were in the air and I got a phone call from the folks back at West Point. I had to charter out because I didn't have United Airlines totally under control. The charter airline for a bunch of cadets was sitting on the runway in Newburgh, and the airline had gone bankrupt, and they demanded cash now before they would take off. And they were looking for something like 200000 bucks, which I did not have. And I went into a major scramble. Don't ask me how. I found the money, wired it, and instead of being earlier in the scheme of things, they were at the end and got there in time. But that was frightening. You know, putting together an event of any kind is always crazy. Moving the Army-Navy game, obviously, uh, <laughs> with all the monkey wrenches and all that stuff, seemed to be as crazy of an idea as you could get. But I'm sure that to the cadets, you're used to going to different places in the summer, going to airborne school, you get on a plane, you go do all the stuff. There's process for all that. For going to Army-Navy game down in Philadelphia, you have the boomerang buses, all that sort of stuff. You don't have to house everybody you send everybody, you drive them down, you drive them back. Essentially, it's just, you know, you got to pay for the buses. But when you talk about like the level of complexity and all this sort of stuff, it starts to make sense why no one had ever done it before to figure that out. But after you finished it and after you did it and all of the, you know, with the lawsuits and all the other crazy stuff and you're sitting there and like you said, all of the unintended consequences, all of the things that came out of this, I mean, like, what did that feel like after it was done and dusted and you were like, hey, we did this, this had an impact, and we got to show West Point to a group of people that had never seen it like that, people in, in LA and Southern California. I think that uh, 
you know, after being sued by the Secretary of the Navy, and not, not a lot of people can lay claim to that, for the residual monies, I did reflect back, and there were several things. Number one, the enormous amount of goodwill in Pasadena, which continues to this day, the relationships, which continue to this day. There's now a time capsule and a bench right in front of the Rose Bowl. Nobody will ever forget that the Army-Navy game was not there. Every cadet midshipman that was involved in those four classes, I run into people all the time that recall that thing with uh, fond memories. From their perspective, it went perfectly. We got them out there. We had what I call zip code commanders meet them in various locations around the Los Angeles area. Rather than having families meet them at the airport, I had them dispersed at shopping centers and schools, brought the buses to them. Families picked them up, took them to their home, shuttled them back and forth. It almost became a family event. I gave them a night at Disney. I went out to Disney and I said, I'd like to shut the park down. They said, you're out of your mind. Well, I'd run a a study and I found that for the last four years, their attendance that particular night was in the dumper. I told them I could double it. They said, you're crazy. They said, give me a chance. They did and we tripled it. We had a major event with Bob Hope, which were the combined glee clubs of the two uh, academies. Huge event. We had a series of major activities that the entire city was caught up in it. I go back and they still remember the Army-Navy game in Pasadena, as do a lot of graduates. So they don't see anymore, you know, what happened behind the scenes. They don't see that I got a phone call at three o'clock in the morning from the police department. My executive assistant had completely spaced out, had no idea where the hell she was. I mean, it was just, you know, that kind of a time. I was talking to um, someone who was at Disney back when they had, I think it was um, Michael Phelps. They wanted to set up a pool at Disneyland to have Michael Phelps race someone at Disneyland. I don't know. It might have been a shark or something like that. But anyways, they're talking about this. And you think, you're like, well, you know, you put a pool in and it's not that big a thing. It's like, yeah, but what happens if you spill a million gallons of water in Disneyland or whatever? You start to think of the second and third and fourth order events. And obviously crisis planning works that way. But like marketing works the other way too. I know as as a kid who you know grew up in Oakland, California, I never met a West Point cadet ever. I didn't even know West Point existed until I was a sophomore in high school and I was on the East Coast visiting my cousins and my uncle and my dad cornered me and are like, hey, you should apply to West Point. I'm like, I don't, what is that? And like, that's just how it is. Like on the West Coast, there's a lot of people who don't know that. And in order to build those relationships, you have to be there in person, right? And obviously like today we have a very digital economy and all that sort of stuff. But back then... Like if you weren't on TV or if you weren't there in person or on the radio, you weren't going to get seen. And like putting West Point cadets out in front of people out on the streets doing that is a huge marketing you know, initiative for the Academy. To your point, you make an excellent one. It rained like to beat the band the night before the game. And so I thought that was going to really put a damper on uh, the event at Disney. Uh, I can tell you I was out there. They were having a blast rain notwithstanding at Disney. <laughs> with friends and we had something like 25,000 people out there and I was there at three o'clock in the morning when it stopped. My biggest fear the next day was what was that going to do to the field because they had the traditional march on for the Corps of Cadets and the Brigade of Midshipmen in Philadelphia that everybody loves. And uh, the Commandant and a bunch of us were standing around on the field and, and looked at the field and said, there's no way we can have a march on. And I thought, yikes, there goes a major piece out of this big puzzle. What are we going to do? Well, That's what relationships are all about. I call my buddies on the TV stations in L.A. again. They put me on the air and they said, how would you like to watch a parade of the Corps of Cadets and the Brigade of Midshipmen from downtown Pasadena to the Rose Bowl? Over a million people showed up. So instead of some 80,000 people watching a march on, 
It was on TV with over a million people lining the streets, so the Corps cadets couldn't have been happier. And so what? So it was a, a mile and change down to the Rose Bowl, but it had an enormous impact. But it's one of those things where I guess that's where I benchmark myself. I tend to figure it out. I don't have time for people that can't figure it out and see obstacles. It made a huge impact on the city of Los Angeles, not just Pasadena, and that was the biggest thing, and on TV, and the folks loved it. Well, and I think you at the time, you were retired from the Army. You'd been there, done that. You'd seen it all from that perspective. You had some cachet. You weren't just a random person trying to rub two sticks together. You were in a role that obviously could do this, and you were kind of the perfect connection point between West Point as a grad and retired Army officer. So I think you could pull all that stuff together. It seems like you called in every favor. And I know that that's like a really scary thing for entrepreneurs and, and business leaders when you have that moment in time where you're like, I know that I am not going to do this alone. I can't do it alone. I got to call in every favor. What was that experience like for you to have to call in all those favors and know that you got to rely on your brothers and sisters to help you out? It's very mixed. And I tried very hard not to make it about me, but about them and the important role that they were playing. I couldn't focus on, hey, I got a problem. I had to make it, we have a problem. And uh, there are a lot of moving pieces here. And this is really about the two academies and it's about their brand and their visibility in the marketplace. And so uh, you're not doing this for me, you're doing this for the military academies. And, and I think that's what resonated. As a result of that, I could see kind of a glint in their eye that they wanted to be part of something that was bigger than all of us. And so you wrote a book called start everything, finish nothing. The Curse of Modern Management, obviously a bunch of lessons from that book and just from leadership in general. You've been doing this a long time, West Point Class of 53. I'm curious, why did you write the book and, and why did you feel like you had stuff that you needed to share? As a function of mentoring, coaching, and facilitating meetings with my CEOs and uh, senior executives, my involvement with various community-based organizations, I find, and this is not uh, something that I invented per se, but storytelling more often than not carries the day. And so when we had a particular situation, I always would find something in my past that was built around a story. And so my guys were pushing my buttons about doing a book and I told them, I just don't have the time for this. And it went on and on again. And so I just let it drift. And then after a while I started thinking, well, what would I call this book? And I realized that, um, when I listen to them and I listen to myself, every day you start all these things and you don't finish a thing. So I wrote that down. Then as a function of time, I said, okay, what would I build around it? And so I created a page for each of what I thought would be the various chapters of the book. And so I wandered around really for quite a period of time and just sort of plugging in holes along the way. But I was determined to write a book that was more actionable. And so there are all kinds of books out there, and they, they tend to have only one action line associated with it. Whether it's good to great in search of excellence, you go on and on again with a lot of great business books that are out there. But there's always one lesson, one takeaway. I said, no, that's not going to happen. In my case, I wanted multiple uh, calls to action. So as a case in point, I've got chapters that speak about it can't be done, decide to decide, accountability, dealing with change, loyalty and commitment, changing careers. All of those things are very actionable. And as a result of that, you can pick up that book and just follow the chapter headings, and you've got a ladder to success, if you will, but it's all built around stories. One of the crazier stories is I was in my office in Beverly Hills. 
I got a phone call from the office of the mayor of Moscow. And to get a visa, a dignitary has got to get an invitation. Somehow, and I have no idea how this happened, but never mind, I had shown up in a fashion magazine in Moscow. That's another story. And uh, so they called me and asked if I would invite the mayor of Moscow to Beverly Hills. Okay, that sounded pretty cool. I said, sure, why not? Well, the next thing that happens, of course, is uh, I've got to explain that to my board and the city council. They look at me, Arnon, what did you just do? And I said, I guess I invited the mayor of Moscow. And then I get a call a little bit later from them, and they want to know if, and I hate to use that example right now with what's going on in Ukraine, but the short story is that he asked if he could bring a couple of business associates and, and uh, some governmental people. Well, the next thing I know, here's an Aeroflot special flight heading for uh, the city. And, oh my gosh, 250 Russians are inbound to Beverly Hills. And they brought with them a TV crew with a drop-dead gorgeous blonde anchor. And we're about to get interviewed, and she could not have been more stoic, just like a pile of ice. And I didn't know what to do. What happened is that with that many people coming, I decided to put them together in the Beverly Hilton, all of those people, and then do a simulcast to Moscow. And so in addition to the mayor of Moscow, whose his agenda was to visit the Playboy Mansion, he didn't have all this other stuff going on in his head. So all these people, we've got uh, 250 Russians, a bunch of business people from the Los Angeles area. So they're interviewing me before all of this. And it was just so intimidating to be looking at her just a couple of inches apart. I don't know what made me say it. But I leaned into her and I said, would you like to defect? Well, holy cow. Uh, I don't know how that worked, but she started smiling. I started smiling, literally broke the ice. That's sort of my mantra is, again, try to figure your way out through using humor to get out of a bad situation. And, you know, the cool thing, and we forget about that, is it was really about people, not governments. Nobody was thinking about all the policy issues when this guy went up to visit the Playboy Mansion. Nobody was thinking about that when we were all in the room talking together about business. Well, I think it speaks to another thing, which I think you've leveraged in your career, which is, you know, you got to fight with what you have. And when you're in LA, when you're in Pasadena, when you're near Hollywood, it's like, if you have Bob Hope down the road, you got to use Bob Hope. If you have whatever it is at your disposal, you have to use those things. And I think that so often, whether it's entrepreneurs or business leaders, don't realize what they have around them. Mike Krzyzewski tells a story about when he was in China for the Olympics and he sat down with a group of Chinese, I think, businessmen and diplomats and different things. And they asked him questions about West Point for like 30 minutes instead of about the team, team USA. It's just one of those things that I think in the West Point community, it's like we have a certain amount of perhaps worldliness that we don't necessarily always realize that can be an advantage. And to think about him, you know, when I go back to West Point, a thing that struck me there was very competitive environment. You're not as good as you think you are. There are a lot of people that are a lot better than you are. I show up for gymnastics, and, and it's exactly like the Olympics. Every exercise that you do, you can watch in, in the Olympics. And I'm sitting there on the floor watching these guys flying over the stuff. And I look at it, I said, there's no way in the world that I can do that. And yet, because it's progressive, ultimately, you're able to accomplish it. And so it comes back to this philosophy, don't tell yourself something can't be done. Yeah, it's a great point. As a business leader, you have that mindset of it can be done because you've seen and done all that stuff at West Point or in the Army or, or whatever. Nothing in business is is probably going to be anywhere near as hard as the IOCT for some of us, for those of us who, who perhaps are, are not as good on whatever parallel bars or whatever those things are called. Well, what it teaches you at the academy is a process, which is important, and a certain amount of discipline, and you carry that through. 
uh, commitment. But I continuously look for opportunities not only to do better myself, but for others to be better. I tend to tackle things that nobody else wants to do. I wound up chairing the Orlando Centennial because nobody would do it. I was able to move uh, UCLA out of the Coliseum into the Rose Bowl because somebody said that couldn't be done. And I had to do it over poor Tom Bradley's uh, dead body. The mayor of uh, Los Angeles at the time was fighting it vigorously. At the time, UCLA, uh, their average season ticket was around 32,000, not good. And they wanted to move it dramatically. And I said, I'll take it to 55 in five years. And we took it there and won. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, you've changed careers a few times, obviously. And after spending 20 years in the Army, there's uh, a lot of folks, women and men, that just say, you know what, I think I'm just going to take up gardening and rest my knees for a while. Whereas you obviously went the opposite direction. How did that transition out of the military go for you as someone who who was retired already and then now going and finding a second career. And how the heck did you get into uh, the career you did? Well, you know, clearly it's a huge cultural shift. And um, on my last assignment, I was living in the in the civilian community, if you will, and got to know my neighbors, which is uncommon. You do that in the military. It doesn't happen quite so much in civilian life. I got to know my neighbors. And through various discussions with some of the neighbors, and this at the time was in, in Orlando, they were talking then about somebody to head up the bicentennial and the city centennial. And they asked me the question, would you do that? And I said, well, I'm on active duty and ultimately I'll be reassigned going someplace else. And they said, what if we found you a job? And I said, cool, you find me a job and, and I'll do it. And so... To the chagrin of my wife, after over 20 years, uh, I made that shift. And I leveraged that into a fair amount of, of visibility. It opened up other opportunities. They gave me a chance to be president of a small consulting company. That morphed into a, a contract with a major company in Pasadena, California, where they were in competition. Interestingly enough, uh, with IT&T to develop a series of uh, training devices utilizing laser technology to get an indication of hit. They won the contract, offered me a job to come out to California and be co-program manager. And uh, we birthed a system which is all over the Army today in the Marine Corps called a mile system. It's a made-up word. It's totally garbage speak. And um, a classmate of mine uh, came up with that name. We were naming it for somebody who was uh, my boss we didn't think very highly of. We struggled with the middle of initial. We came up with garbage speak. And as it turned out, we had no idea that we came up with the word miles it's a Greek word, miles, for Greek soldier. No idea. You put a laser, eye safe laser in the Army's family of direct fire weapons to get an indication of hit. I came up with the name. I took it through uh, research and development, the first couple of phases, and I had the breadboard model still in my garage. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. So it doesn't stand for multiple integrated laser engagement system? It, it that is the exact correct word. It was called laser engagement system. We were trying to put a Y in there, and it didn't work. So we had, had to run with the eye. That is too funny. That's a great story. I'm curious, like, how did you know that being involved in the Chamber of Commerce, which is something you did a few times in your career, like, how did you know that was a career path that you wanted to go down? What was it about that? I'm not sure how I got into it initially, except that I met some people that were involved in the Chamber of Commerce befriended them. I learned a little bit about it. And so when the opportunity came to me, it just struck me that uh, Chambers of Commerce offered an opportunity to interact with the business community. And if I was going to find my way, that would be a path 
to determine what my ultimate business career was going to look like. So I did not know precisely where it was going to lead, but I realized pretty quickly that it provided a stairway or a ladder or whatever, or a bridge, whatever you will. And I just that struck me as a good path to uh, learn the members of the business community and figure what was out there for me. It's a mixed blessing. You could try to sell yourself as something or you look for an opportunity and ask yourself, is that a good one for me? And of course, later on, I went on to be the CEO of four different chambers of, of commerce, initially Pasadena, then Long Beach, Palm Springs, and, and ultimately Beverly Hills. And their role is pretty simple, and that is to establish relationships within the business community, act as advocates for business, meaning help them through uh, difficult legislative issues. And so you represent them at the city, county, and a state level to protect them from either some law that's going to come down or some regulation that's going to impact the cost of doing business. And I found myself in behalf of all chambers as a spokesman in their behalf at every level. And I think that visibility sort of led later on to something which was really a huge blessing. And that was I was in California and at the time in Palm Springs and was asked by the governor if I would serve on what was then called the California-Nevada Super Speed Train Commission. So technically, I'm a a commissioner in the state of California, retired. That was a great assignment, by the way. And I'm the one that came up with a design for a high-speed rail system for the Pacific Southwest, not simply a gambler special from Las Vegas to California, which was driving the hotel industry bananas. They did not want to have a high-speed exit out of California. So there were all kinds of roadblocks. But the short story is on one of those trips, the commission knew that I had taken German at West Point because I had an excellent instructor. I gained a fluency. And so we get over there and they asked me if I'll give the welcoming talk to the uh, German engineers, which I was able to do, but I was sweating bullets because I was trying to pull words out of my head as fast as I could. But somehow it worked and I became their instant buddy. Oh my God, the guy speaks German. That's incredible. What's your relationship like with the Academy? Obviously, you've been involved with it for a long time. It seems like it keeps coming up throughout your career, and it's been an ever-steady presence for you. I think the Army-Navy game sort of did it for me, and it sort of re-energized me asking myself the question. And maybe it was guilt, I don't know, because they didn't get all the money that they wanted uh, out of the game because we couldn't collect on all the pledges, never mind the lawsuit downstream. Which, by the way, I had to uh, use my uh, one year of law at West Point to get me through the uh, district court in Los Angeles and through the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal and win on a stupid technicality, which I'm not very proud of, but at least they didn't nail me for a couple of million bucks. I felt that I owed the Academy and I needed to make up that shortfall and just call it pure and simple guilt. So I've dedicated myself ever since to try to bring people up to West Point that are willing to make a contribution. And the good news is I've been successful. I've been fortunate with my business. And so I've made contributions. There'll never be a building up there. I can't pass that muster, Never mind a statue. But the short story is through that vehicle, I've been able to bring a lot of support to West Point, both monetarily and in many other ways. And so I feel that gradually over the years, I'm refilling that pot. That's really cool. I feel like There's a lot of awareness and introductions and relationships and obviously money that West Point needs at at any given time. And I think that so often we feel somebody else is going to donate the gigantic building or the new thing. But like you did with Pasadena, introducing a new generation of people 
to West Point and to Annapolis. That sort of stuff is one of the reasons that why we're excited to do this podcast and some of the other content that we're working on is to just share like all of these different facets of what West Point is working on at any given time, what AOG is working on. And I think that for cadets, when you're there in the moment, you just get the benefits of what's going on. You don't know anything. You just know you're going to Pasadena for Army Navy. You'd have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. Once you get out, you realize you're like, oh, there's actually people working on all these things. And that requires connections and effort and energy and dollars and all that stuff. But it's one of the things that I think separates the great leaders who are able to, to crowd those resources and point people in the right direction. And obviously, you've been doing that for a long time. Well, I, you know, I think if there's no point that I want to make that's probably more important to me, it's never about me, really. And that's why the lessons learned, I don't want people to, re- to repeat the mistakes that I made. And so I'm dedicating myself in that direction, you know, try to pay back to West Point. You know, this sounds a little egregious, but after the Army Navy game, it struck me that the least they could do in Pasadena was to put up a statue of me at the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to be three times the size of Saddam Hussein because I didn't want it to fall down easily. And I recognized that don't make it about yourself, dummy. I reached out to them. I said, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to put in place a bench and a time capsule to express appreciation to the city of Pasadena and the Rose Bowl for hosting the Army-Navy game and the cadets and midshipmen in your homes. You know what? In less than 30 days, boom, it was approved. That's simple. And it'll be open on the 25th of November of 1983, where there's a time capsule. And it's now become a focal point for visitors because they've added to that. They put another bench in place to commemorate the 1944 Rose Bowl game, which was played at Duke because of World War II, and a statue. And so all of that is very synergistic, and it's about a 1,000 feet, give or take, from the entrance to the bowl. You cannot miss it without knowing that the Army-Navy game was there. That's amazing. So I was super involved in like fan groups for the basketball team and for the football team when I was there. And one of the big reasons that I wanted to do that and why I was super involved was I just wanted like our sports teams to have more students to go to those games. And I know that cadets need to get outside of the academy. But also like the fact that we send these people on a bus to whatever, Lehigh or Lafayette or wherever it is, it's like we could easily throw a bus of cadets to go cheer them on. And I think that like when you are all one team and like that sort of stuff has like a huge impact. It had a huge impact at me at the academy to be able to go to all these different stadiums and watch the Army basketball team play a bunch of different places and I signed up for pretty much and we did a bunch of that stuff for the football team and Colonel McKern and and, and General Caslin and, and all those people were awesome when we were there to support those efforts. But it makes a huge difference. It makes you more worldly. It makes you see out to other places. Like I'd never been to central Pennsylvania. I'd never been to, you know, all those different places. And it's really bringing the entire core of cadets to to Pasadena is something that there's a reason why it hasn't been done since. But to my taste, not a good reason. It's like, sounds like it was a logistic headache. And maybe that's an understatement. But I think that stuff is so important because so many cadets come from different places and walks of life and all that stuff. You need to be able to experience, like that's what's great about the army is it's a melting pot of all these different cultures and communities. 
And you have to get out there and see those places. And there's no substitute for getting on the ground. You wouldn't go and not recon. And yet we do that. We don't get out there on the ground. So I just, I think that what you did is so cool. And it's something that I would have a similar harebrained idea, I feel like. We are like, remove all the barriers to entry that you can to get people to go to basketball games. Get them a bus, get them pizza, get them all that stuff. So that, you know, if you get picked up when it's December or, or January and it's five degrees outside, you can get picked up in a warm bus. I'll take you up to the game and give you free dinner and you, you can go home. But yeah, I think that stuff is so important. It's so cool to, to see that you took the mantle for that when no one was asking you to do it. Well, what was amazing is everybody fought it until it was a reality. Then everybody wanted in. Can I go to that VIP event? Can I get a ticket to this? Can I yeah. get something else? So all the naysayers suddenly switched gears the moment the thing was fully in motion. I want to switch gears to what you're doing now at Vistage. You obviously work with tons of business leaders, senior executives, entrepreneurs. I'm curious, like, what are some lessons that you've taken over the years in, in working with some of these folks and the types of companies uh, that you're working with? In today's world right now, everybody is is struggling with two main things, as you probably know. One is uh, manpower, and the other is supply chain management. And many of them just are not equipped to move as quickly as you have to move in a very fast-moving dynamic. And inherent in that, and that's why there's a chapter in the book called Decide to Decide. They're afraid to make a decision because they're afraid that they put themselves either at financial risk or that their decision will be criticized downstream. I would say that's number one. Number two is accountability. I find a general weakness right now in terms of people holding themselves accountable. They're ready to blame almost anybody else, a circumstance, pin the tail on some other's donkey, never mind holding their people accountable. I find that internally, and I work very hard on this to make sure that they establish core values. Some would call it uh, fundamentals. And uh, in my book, the number one core value is mutual respect, which is a fast way of saying, you know, treat others as you would have them treat you, which makes a huge difference. I find at the same time that because of COVID and people remotely working, which is my facetious spin on it, that they have terrible accountability issues going on and how to keep people engaged given an enormous growing of concern over family issues that has somehow cropped up. And so for the first time in a long time, instead of people taking work home, home is going into the workplace. And suddenly yeah. people can't figure out how to cope, rightfully or wrongfully. So you have a lot of things going on where motivation is really huge. And so one of the things I've been doing almost on a quarterly basis is... Um, Finding ways for leaders to re-motivate their people, whether it be through recognition or whether you do some sort of an event or an activity or whether you wander around the office and do the four corners and, and let everybody know you appreciate what they're doing for them, whatever it is to pay more attention to people's needs and what motivates them and find out what motivates them. And I think there's the key. If you can find out what motivates somebody and give it to them and give them the opportunity. Yeah, I remember sitting down with my wife probably um, four or five months into the pandemic, and I was like, every excuse has been stripped away for why we're not going to the gym. <laughs> we don't commute anymore. We don't do it. We stop work at a certain time. We're at home. We have nowhere else to go. We have no commitments. We have no anything. And yet we still can't have time. Turns out, I think the problem is us, not our competing priorities. And I think that was a hard look in the mirror for everyone saying, yeah, it turns out it's actually me that's the problem. It's not the commute. It's not the other stuff. You're spot on. And I'm not saying that everybody that, that one size fits all. 
there are a lot of people who can very effectively, and salespeople are a good example, who can very effectively work in a home environment, assuming that they have protected space and time. Yeah. How many folks do you think you've mentored over the past decade or so? I'll put it into two categories. I'd say in excess of 100 easily, but it's got to be more than that. I hadn't really thought about it. Currently, I got 58 under wing right now. And then I was told because I'm part of a program reaching out to uh, help transitioning senior officers and senior enlisted coming out of Special Ops Command. Somebody told me I'd mentored over 40. There are a lot of people that I work with pro bono that can't afford to pay for Vistage. And I do it pro bono just because somebody doesn't have the money. That doesn't mean they don't have the wherewithal and the opportunity. And I want to see them get to opportunity. I really can't put a number on it. I wished I could, but it's a fair number. And so what size companies does it just range the gamut? Yeah, but the definition of small business comes into mind. So it could be that entrepreneur with five or six people. It could be a bank with a boatload of people or a law firm with, with 500. I would say in my particular world, it runs a span just within my groups alone from 1 million to about 250 million. That doesn't account a bank. And obviously we'll link up your website and all that stuff if, if anyone wants to get in touch with you after this. I know you're not doing this for press here, but I got to at least give you a plug. The other thing that before we get out of here, I, I do want to ask you, it's been really interesting to me and illuminating the stories about the Chamber of Commerce. Because I didn't really know what the Chamber of Commerce did. And when we were talking about it, it was really interesting to learn that stuff. What would be your advice for a business owner or entrepreneur of how to leverage the Chamber of Commerce to help you out? I think the Chamber of Commerce is a powerful tool, and a lot of people just really don't understand it. If you're going to effectively conduct, operate a business, you jolly well better be a member of the Chamber of Commerce. It's tantamount to the good housekeeping seal of approval, but you can't go into a city planning commission or into a county planning commission and have any kind of leverage, the Chamber of Commerce will get you in the door. So if you're waiting for a permit or you're waiting for a certificate of occupancy, or if you're trying to take out a license or if you're trying to get a variation, anything that you do that is a bar to entry to you to effectively conduct your business, that's what the Chamber is all about. True, all you hear about is it's Chamber of Commerce Day, which is another way of saying it's a good place to you know work, do business, and to live. Oh, that's a good tagline. But more importantly, the relationships that you build within the Chamber of Commerce lead to business opportunity. So there's business opportunity, business information, business assistance. You can't, for 400 bucks, whatever a minimum membership is in the average Chamber of Commerce, the return on investment really is a function of how engaged they are. You can't just simply sign up and say, I'm now a member of the Chamber of Commerce. Put up your shield and move on. No, you've got to engage. And so they do that through the various committee structures and bringing people together to do various things in behalf of the community. There are two programs that just about every chamber does, and I did it. And I'm active here in the uh, the Tampa Bay area in the Small Business of the Year program and in Leadership Tampa. And I've been through both. Both are vehicles to Leadership Tampa, like Leadership San Francisco or any other city, is to give you a back scenes view of how the city ticks and to give you an introduction to every facet to include the nonprofits, the cultural, the sports, tourism, and the whole deal. The knowledge that you can gain through these programs, you can't measure. Through the small business of the year, you get huge visibility. Never mind, they run you through the coals in that process, and you're a better business coming out at the other end. So uh, it's a totally in, invaluable tool. 
I remember in, in Pasadena, I had a guy from a major airline. I won't use it for purposes of this bro- uh, podcast, but what I asked him to be the chair of my membership committee, which was suffering. We couldn't get people to come in. Well, all of a sudden, he started bringing brand toys in, and he couldn't beat people off. And it was it got to be to the point that if his airline didn't go there, they were not going to go there. It was that funny. But it's that kind of stuff that, that builds the relationships. At the same time, when I was in, in Beverly Hills, we were just like every other community, you had a couple of events. One of those was what I facetiously would call Wake Up Beverly Hills. And we used to go around the room. People would stand up, introduce themselves, mumble their name. Nobody would pay any attention. And it, it was just hilarious. So I came up with the idea of everybody come up with a tagline. Now I had their attention. So there's one lady gets up. She runs a mortuary. What's her tagline? It is better to know us than need us than need us and not know us. Holy cow, a funeral home. But you could use that same tagline in almost any situation. And it created energy within the room. I love it. Rolf, this has been absolutely fantastic. Any final thoughts here? Don't let outside forces influence your inner drive. I'm not Yogi Berra. When you get to a fork in the road, take it. I'll blast my way through. I will figure it out. But in the process, I've got to understand that human capital is involved. And that's important. And so you've got to get people around you that buy into what you're doing. And you go back to your question when we started off earlier about relationships and leveraging them. I hate to use the word use people, which I do not. I would rather use the word that together we can make something happen. I love it. Great advice. Thanks again so much for hanging out today and sharing all these lessons. I know I really appreciate it and our listeners do too in the greater West Point AOG community. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. All right. Thank you very much. This has been a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.